we are going to uh, jump into our lesson this morning. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And uh, I had somebody come up to me last week and said that, you know, when I, when I asked, can you pray for a president or can you pray for a government that you didn't vote for? They said that stretched them. Um, if that stretched you, this sermon may stretch you. So just stay with me, all right? So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. If you've got your Bible and you want to follow along, go ahead and flip over there. If not, the scripture is going to be up here on the screen as always. Uh, a man named D.L. Moody was the most famous preacher evangelist in the world in the late 1800s. Hundreds, And people from around the world would come and be a part of, of his, his uh, Bible crusades, his, his uh, sermons. And, and he always had this, this kind of camp meeting uh, thing that he would do once a year. And people would come from around the world to be a part of it. And he held it there at the Bible school that he had started in Massachusetts. And one year, there was a, a large group of pastors from Europe that came to be attendees, and they put them all up at the, in the dorms of the school. Now, just kind of following the European tradition, these pastors put their shoes outside the door at night because a servant would come along, take the shoes, clean them, polish them, and put them back for them in the morning. But uh, ain't a lot of servants wandering around through a, an American Bible school looking for shoes to, to polish, right? But there was, one, there was one person that was wandering the halls that night and happened to be D.L. Moody. And he was going around and he was actually praying for the people that would be attending the, the conference and he began to see the shoes, and he knew what was going on because he had traveled quite a bit in Europe. So as he's continuing just to walk and pray, he sees some of his Bible school students, and he tells them what's going on. And instead of just jumping and going, hey, we'll go serve those pastors, uh, they were a bit put out that, that someone would expect another man to clean his shoes for him. So Moody didn't say anything else to the students. He just went... And he gathered up all the shoes, and he took them back to the room he was staying in, and he began cleaning them and polishing them himself. And late that night, or maybe even early that morning, one of his friends had gotten up, and he saw a light up under Moody's door, and he went to check on him. And when he went in, he found D.L. Moody had been up all night cleaning and polishing these shoes. And he said, he said he was just overwhelmed in that moment that this man who so many people revered, this man who that very day would stand on the platform and, and, and preach to, to a couple of thousand people, was so humble that he was just going to clean the shoes of other men because that was the servant's heart that he had. So we started last week in uh, just our study through the book of Philippians, 
And so last week was chapter one. This week we're going to do chapter two. And this morning we're going to see what humility in a servant's heart really looks like. And I'm just simply calling this message, I See People. Now remember that Paul was writing to to friends. He had he had founded this church. So he was writing to the church at Philippi, but he knew them quite well. And he uh he was writing to them from from Rome when he was under house arrest. And these were Roman citizens. Remember they weren't Jews. These were Roman citizens. And they had not been raised to know a God that was loving and compassionate and willing to serve his creation. He had to continue to remind them that that the God that he he was portraying, that he was preaching, and that he was bringing was not like the Roman gods who were tricksters and selfish and vain and demanded to be served. Okay? So I'm going to set just a, a little bit... Set some things up here before we actually get into uh, the meat of the message. But we're starting right there in Philippians chapter 2. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I just want to look at the very first part of the scripture there first. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. Now, I know that the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, and there are people that will say that, you know, it doesn't mean the same thing today. It's not relevant for today. It's this, that, and the other. But one thing that I can tell you, because I've looked this up in the Greek, that nothing still means nothing. Okay, you've got that? Nothing means nothing. I know that we live in, in a day and age. It's not like when I was in school way, way, way back when. I've heard that they don't teach kids how to do long division anymore. They don't teach them how to write in cursive. They can't read an analog clock. But nothing still means nothing, right? Nothing still means nothing. The word selfish ambition right there is actually one word in the Greek. It's erethia. And this word translated means selfish, full of strife, contention, and factions. Have we seen some factions in our nation recently? In the Greek lexicon, which I like to look at because it takes the word and it doesn't just give you the definition of the word, but it tells you where the word came from. It tells you the origin of the word, and it tells you how it was used back in the ancient times. And I want you to listen to this. I did not make this up, okay? It says that the word erythia, that has been translated uh, selfish ambition here, connotes trickery used by someone seeking political office or aiming for cheap applause. In other words, someone lying to you, fooling you, or telling you what you want to hear so they can get what they want. Now, the Bible's not relevant for today, is it? We've not seen any of that over this this last year or anytime you talk about politics, right? Hmm. So the word is really saying, do nothing that creates strife. Do nothing that creates 
factions through using inflammatory rhetoric. That's a tactic of the enemy. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition, there's the same word there again, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, where there's strife, where there's contention, where there's factions, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That same scripture, James 3.16, reading it out of the Passion Translation says, Wherever selfishness is uncovered, you will find many troubles and every kind of meanness. That sound like some stuff going on in our, our nation? Some meanness, some factions, some inflammatory rhetoric. Now listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 again, out of the Passion Translation. Just that little part that I read. Be free from pride-filled opinions, for they will only harm your cherished unity. It's a trick of the enemy to get us to divide to get us to, to line up in factions, to get us to be, oh, I'm over here and they're over there. This selfish ambition, it's what we see in politics. Its goal is to divide. It's the same thing as a religious spirit. It brings strife and separation and it causes us to break up into factions. We accuse one another. We look down on one another. We believe the worst about one another. Don't believe me? Have you heard either one of these recently? Everybody that would vote for Trump is a racist. Everybody that would vote for Biden hates America and the police. You see how this spirit works? Man, y'all are getting quiet. So I had to bring that out. I had to, I had to let you understand what erythia means before we get into the message here. So here's my first point. It's not us against them. It is not us against them. Philippians 2, let's read all of verse 3 and verse 4 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. To look to the needs of others, we have to look at others. We have to see them. We even have to try to put ourselves in their place, begin to see things from their perspective. If we're only seeing it from our perspective, if I'm only judging it from my side of things, I'm not seeing what they're going through. We need to ask the Lord to open our eyes so that we can really see people. We may get uncomfortable, but we have to be willing to think differently. What do I mean by that? And this is, you know, I don't say things just to stir people up. I know that that is, 
I had somebody ask me one time, do you always have to be so controversial? I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm just trying to get us to think differently. Okay, because if we always think the way that we're told we have to think, we never grow beyond where we are. So I was praying about this, and I thought I was really smart because I thought God had said something to me, and and I was about to bring out revelation that nobody in the world had ever heard of. But I mentioned it to a couple of people, and they go, oh, yeah, there's other people talking about that. And I go, well, I guess I'm not as smart as I thought I was. But I was praying and I really believe the Lord asked me this question. Because I was, I, I was praying over the election, and, you know, I, there, there are people that say, well, you know, I can't vote for, for this candidate or that candidate. I can never vote for, for a candidate that's not pro-life. And I understand that. But I believe the Lord asked me, are we pro-life or are we just pro-birth? Because to truly be pro-life, shouldn't we care about the life of the woman who's considering abortion too? To truly be pro-life, shouldn't we care about the baby after it's born and it's living in poverty? To truly be pro-life, shouldn't we care about the lives of the hundreds of thousands of kids who were born, but they were born into such a junky situation that the government even looks at them and says, you can't live in that. And now they're living in the foster care system. And honestly... To really be pro-life, shouldn't we care about the life of the woman who did have an abortion because she didn't see any other way out? Or does grace, love, and mercy not cover her? Does that love that covers a multitude of sin not cover her? Look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be clever. I'm not trying to, to push people's buttons. I'm just trying to get us to, to think about people and not just dogma. Because I am pro-birth, but I want to be pro-life too. Early Christians took care of the sick. <laughs> they fed the hungry. They protected widows, and they even adopted kids into their family who had been abandoned. Many times those with special needs, kids with deformities and things, and the parents would just throw them out in the street. And by the third century, the fabric of Roman society had really been changed, infected, you might say. By the love of Jesus. Even the the Christian-hating emperor Julian wrote, this Christian sect has gotten out of control because they care for Rome's needy better than Rome does. 
What would our communities look like if we got out of control? Loving people. What if we did what the church was born to do? There wouldn't be a, a lot of overlooked and underloved people if the church was being the church. Right? Now, once again, I'm not trying to take a stick and beat anybody because I'm talking to me as much as I'm talking to you. But I think it's a challenge from the Lord. Let's be who we're supposed to be. Let's get out of control. Let's infect something with, with the love of Jesus. Let's see the fabric of our society change. Let me throw one more out at you. What if? What if abortion for all practical purposes was eradicated not because it was illegal, but because we loved our community so well. But that kind of love is going to take unity. We can't be breaking up into factions. That kind of love is going to take us seeing things differently and trying to see from people's perspectives. And it's going to take the death of selfish ambition. So it's not us against them. And here's my second point. Don't just serve yourself, serve them. Back to Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, think like Jesus. Have the same attitude, the same motivation as Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus didn't just hang on to his divine rights and privileges, but as verse 7 says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Think like Jesus. Jesus saw us and he served us. He left the comfort of heaven to come to where we are. Sometimes we have the attitude, well, if people will just come to church, we'll love them. Sometimes we got to get out of the church and go get them. He humbled himself and gave sacrificially. And now we're told to act like Jesus. We're told to be like Jesus. And here's the truth. Serving is not always pleasant or easy. Sacrifice means that it costs you something. That's why it's a sacrifice. We don't always like things that cost us something. Let me, let me give you a little uh, uh, illustration. I can take my wallet out of my pocket here. Now, uh, I got a couple of bucks in my wallet here. So I can, take, I can take cash out of my wallet, and I could give it to somebody. Come here, Jimmy. I want to give you some money. I just want to bless you, all right? You're welcome. 
Now we clap our hands. Oh, wasn't that sweet? That really wasn't a sacrifice. That really, that really wasn't a sacrifice. Yeah, I gave him some money. It, it could be an offering. It could be something. But you know what? I got this right here that says I can go to the bank and get more. You want to you wanna know, you wanna know what a sacrifice looks like? I'm going to give my wallet away. I gave something away, yeah, but it didn't, it didn't really hurt me. You know what I'm saying? It really didn't cost me a lot. It cost me 26 bucks. But giving the wallet away, I've just given everything away. Now I can't run to the bank and get more out. That's a sacrifice. That's what Jesus did for us. He gave it all so we could have it all. You understand that? So if we, if we understand sacrifice and we understand serving and we understand that we're supposed to have this same attitude that Jesus had, if we call ourselves Christians, we need to act like Christ. If we're Christians, we have a mandate to serve, right? Because if we don't, we're really just a book club that meets on Sundays. We're just going to read and talk about the book, okay? But if we're going to be like Christ, it's going to cost us something. A lady named Marion Mill was born in 1919, and she was born to some very wealthy diplomats in, in Europe. Her, her first spoon was literally made of gold. She grew up with all of her needs taken care of. She grew up very wealthy, and she married uh, a film director. They moved to Hollywood, and she lived a very lavish lifestyle. But all of the parties, all of the uh, booze, all of the drugs, all of the affairs finally caught up with her, and she went through a very, very messy and humiliating divorce. And it so depressed her and hurt her that, that she attempted suicide three times. After the third time, she decided to move back to Europe just to try to, to get her, her head straight, get, get life back in order. And she moved to Vienna, Austria, where she met a man named Dr. Albert Schweitzer. And he was a... Uh, a world-renowned uh, medical doctor, but he was also a theologian and a missionary, and he had started a hospital in one of the poorest areas in Africa. And Marion Mill spent some time with Dr. Schweitzer while he was on furlough from Africa, and she became so enthralled with with his work that when he left to go back to Africa, she begged to go. So now, the party girl, the girl that had always had all of her needs met and taken care of, spent the rest of her life emptying bedpans and ministering to some of the poorest of the poor 
in this missionary hospital. And she wrote an, an autobiography called, All I Want is Everything. And she wrote in that book that there are two kinds of people in this world, those that serve and those that get served. And she was glad that the Lord gave her the opportunity to serve because in serving, she found everything she ever wanted. When we serve, we find what we're really looking for. When we serve, we begin to see things from a different perspective. We begin to see the people. It's easy to sit on your couch with your feet up watching whatever favorite news channel that you watch and point your finger and say, those people don't know what they're talking about. There's something wrong with those people. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on, you can find something wrong with the other side, right? Very easily. And they'll point it out for you. Why? Because there's a lot of erythia going on. It's easy to do that. You ever pulled up and seen the guys holding up the sign, you know, hungry, please feed me, and you've heard all the stories about, oh, they're just fooling you. They've probably got a nice car back here. They're just trying to, 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 to get on uh, your compassionate side. They're just trying to get something out of you. Well, you know, if you give it in love, who cares? Amen. What if that guy, that woman, hasn't eaten in days, and we're pulling up going, bunch of bums, Sorry, people, you do not know what they're going through. And I'm not saying give money to everybody you see. I'm saying let's be led by the Holy Spirit. Let's hear God. Instead of making this judgment like I know everything. Then God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? All right, here's my third and final point. Work on yourself before you work on them. Back to Philippians 2, verse 14. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Man, that gets a bunch of us right there, doesn't it? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, we could probably all agree that we live in a crooked and twisted generation. There has probably not been a generation that was not crooked and twisted in some way, right? Because we live in a dead and fallen world. Well, let's stop grumbling about them. Let's start, stop disputing with them, and let's start being the light that Jesus has left us here and intends for us to be. We've been led to believe that the blemish that Paul is talking about, let me read it to you again, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. We've been led to believe that the blemish that Paul is referring to is us being stained by the world. Don't get your unloving Jesus cooties on me. You stay away. I want to challenge that and say the blemish is when we don't love the world. 
the blemish is when we don't engage this world. The blemish is when I can remember what I used to be and what God has saved me from. Yet I am not being the light that God has called me to be. That's a blemish. That is a blemish. Well, people always tell me, they'll say, well, you know, the Bible says that we're in this world, but not of it. Why do we always focus on the not of it part? Why don't we focus being in the world? We're a part of this world. We're a part of this community. I'm just not going to let it overwhelm me. I'm going to overwhelm it with the love of God. In Mark, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus encounters a, a blind man and, and his friends in, in the village of Bethsaida. And they come up to Jesus and they ask Jesus to, to heal the man. And Jesus does something very odd. He takes the man by the hand and he walks him outside of the village. He takes him away from his friends, takes him away from what is familiar. I mean, he's been blind. He probably knows his village very well. He knows it by, by touch, by sound, maybe even by smell. He knows what part of the village that he's in. But Jesus has taken him out of what is familiar, taken him away from friends that probably helped him feel comfortable. We might even say that Jesus took him away from his faction. And just to make it even more uncomfortable... Scripture says Jesus spit in his eyes. I'm like, you took me away from my friends. I don't know where we are. And then you spit in my face. This is kind of weird. This is kind of weird, Jesus. But I believe that Jesus took him and positioned him right where he wanted him. Right where he wanted him. I think he took him out of the village so he could see bigger. And he put him right where he wanted him. Then Jesus prayed for him. And he said, what do you see? And he said, I see people. Have we been blind to people? Have we been blind to the needs of people? It's time for us to get out of control. Being who Jesus has called us to be. Now, I know the scripture, what, what the guy actually said was, I see people, but they look like trees. And as it says in verse 25, then Jesus laid hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What was he looking at? We already know what he was looking at. He was looking at people, and now he's seeing it clearly. Have we been seeing clearly? Have we been seeing people, or have we been seeing a caricature of what we're told people are? 
Are we seeing the needs of people? Are we pointing fingers at them and saying, well, you know, if you, if you just get a job, you wouldn't be like this. We don't know why some people wind up homeless. That's why we continue to work with Church Without Fear, those homeless people down there. It's easy to say, oh, well, they're just a bunch of addicts. They just need to get over it. Have you ever been addicted to something? If it was that easy, they would do it. We need to see people and see them like Jesus sees them. Because you know what? He died for that person you may call a bum as much as he died for you. Let's see people. We may not have seen people in the past. We may have been too caught up in our selfish ambition. But Jesus will open our eyes so we can clearly see the people that he intends for us to love. So what do I want you to know? To be Christ-like requires that we see people in a different way. What do I want you to feel? I want you to feel the same thing that Jesus felt. Nine times in the gospel, it says that Jesus felt compassion and then he served somebody. What do I want you to do? I want you to resist factions. Look, when I say I don't care, I don't care. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care. You voted according to how you felt you should vote. And that is the privilege of being an American. But all that stuff stops when we come through these doors. In here, we have unity. We don't have factions in here. And we're not going to be a faction either. Because the world looks at us like we're the faction. We're not going to be a faction. We're going to get out of control and we're going to love some folks. I want us to resist strife. I want us to resist contention. And I want us to move beyond the emotions of a situation and see the people that Jesus loves and that he's already died for. Do you realize that the blood of Jesus has already brought forgiveness to this world? They just need to know about it. They just need to know about it. They need the opportunity to receive it. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. So now I'm asking... What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Whatever the Holy Spirit is saying to you, that's what you're responsible for. Who is he asking you to love? Who is he asking you to to reach out to? Who is he asking you to to help, to disciple, to whatever it might be. 
do what the Holy Spirit says and we'll get out of control. But you know what? We're taking territory, right? We're taking territory.